Today as we approach the word, we're going we're gonna to approach the final message in a series that we've been doing on 2 Kings chapter 5. The series has been lessons that we learned from Naaman. And today the title of this message is The Marks of One Who Misses God. The Marks of One Who Misses God. And I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles or your devices. And for those of you that may be watching on home, I hope that you have a, a Bible nearby that you can follow along and keep it open to this particular chapter. I'm going to read verses 2 and 3 of chapter 5 of 2 Kings. And then I'm going to jump down and read verses 15 through 27. Now, bands of raiders from Aaron had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel. And she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Moving to verse 15. Then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God and he stood before him and he said, now I know that there is no God in all of the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Ramon, May the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. After Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, my master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and I will get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman, and when Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right, he asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to the two servants and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and he put them away in the house. He sent them away and they left. When he went in and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes or olive groves or vineyards or flocks or herds or male and female slaves? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and his skin was leprous. It had become white as snow. Father, I pray that you will take the message from this particular passage of Scripture and that you will open up our hearts so that the Spirit can lead us and guide us, that what we need to know, we will learn. Reveal it to us, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
Just quickly, how many of you have been here for all four weeks of this? So, so I can just see well over half of you. That's wonderful. I'm going to encourage you, rather than recapping what we have done so far, just in the interest of time, is if you haven't, you can go to our website and all of the messages as it relates to this chapter are there for you. But what it began as, as we understood that Syria and Israel were, were bitter enemies. They hated one another. And so for a Syrian general to recognize such a need within his life that he would be willing to go to a foreign power to seek their God, we began to look at the first week as what would it be that would cause somebody to seek God? And we recognized that Naaman had everything. He was rich, he was powerful, he was uh, sophisticated, but the scripture says he had leprosy. He had a wasting disease that nothing could seem to help him. And it wasn't until he recognized that no matter what kind of a designer life we can create for ourselves, something will come along and ruin it. Something will ruin whatever plans that we have. And then he also recognized that though he had all of the money that he could want and all of the influence, the world had nothing whatsoever that could give him to help him in his situation. We move from that to the second week of how do we find God and we talked about the the humbling experience that it was for him when God began to address him and he recognized that it didn't matter what position he was, everybody comes to grace the same way. That there was nothing he could do to earn it or deserve it or merit it. He had to humble himself and obey. And then after doing so, we even read in the scripture today that coming out of the water, he recognizes as he's going back to Elisha's place, this wasn't just a healing. This was life transforming. And in that, he began to think this God that can transform my body is the only God there is in all of the world. And instantly, he began to change the way he think. He changed what he trusted in. And as a result of that, We talked about last week the marks of somebody who trusts in God. They changed their thinking. They have a new attitude toward their possessions. He viewed himself in a way of a servant and that God had become central to his life and that we talked about that passage of scripture where he was taking dirt back with him so that when he went into the temple, he could throw the dirt on the floor and it would be a testimony to everybody around that though he was in the temple of Ramon, he was not serving the God of Ramon. He was serving the God of Israel. These things have led us up then to this particular passage today as we get to the end of this narrative. And frankly, we wish that the narrative ended with that, that that there wasn't anything else. But there is a rather lengthy epilogue to this passage of Scripture. And as a result of it, it's there because we continue to learn what it means to have an encounter with God by contrast at this particular time. So let's take a look at what we learn a little bit from Gehazi. What are the marks of a person who misses God? What are the marks of a person who misses God? Gehazi is an apprentice to the prophet of Israel. He probably either lived in the same house with Elisha or there may have been a compound that he was there, but the contact between the two of them was very close. In fact, Gehazi was high enough in the rank of assistant prophets that he had the right to have other servants with him, which we learned from Scripture. So there were others that were under his authority. Gehazi was not a novice. This was not something new to him. He had been by Elisha's side. He had seen Elisha speak the words of God. He may have even participated in some of that. He had seen the miracles. 
And as we look at this, he may have even been by Elisha's side when Elisha spoke to Naaman initially. He could have been there from the very beginning of this. He had seen the first-hand power of God at work in his own life. And here's what you need to know. That after Naaman comes back from being healed and having an encounter with God that changes him, Elisha wouldn't take a gift that Naaman came back to give him. In fact, it tells us in verse 16, Elisha answered him as Naaman was saying, let me give you something. He said, as surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And then it says, even though Naaman urged him. I don't know how many of you have ever been in a situation where people are urging you to take money. Would you please just take this tea? You know, I, could, I can almost picture Naaman so desperately wanting to do something to repay or something to acknowledge what had been done for him. And yet Elisha refuses that. And, and we need to give Elisha credit here. We don't, we don't talk about Elisha much as it relates to this passage of Scripture. But it is not necessarily wrong for a minister to receive a gift for their ministry. It might not even have been necessarily wrong for Elisha to receive something. But I want you to notice why he didn't receive it. And we find that in verse 26, actually, when he's reprimanding Gehazi, when he says this. Is this the time to take money, to accept clothes, olive groves, vineyards, flocks, herds, men servants, maidservants? He's going, is this the time to do that? And what he's trying to say to Gehazi is this. Do you understand how astounding this is and what has just taken place? You realize there's almost nothing like this in the entirety of the Old Testament. A major figure of another country comes and he gets it. He sees the grace of God. He sees the truth of who God is. This is astonishing. And Naaman is now going to go back to Syria and he's going to bear witness to everybody he knows as to what has taken place. And Elisha is looking at Gehazi and saying, listen, while it might not necessarily be wrong for us to receive something here, I don't want there to be anything that will muddy the waters of this testimony when he gets back home. In fact, as we begin to think about it, it needed to be clear both to Naaman that there was nothing that he could do to buy this, but he also needed to make it clear that when Naaman went back home, that all of the Syrians that saw him and knew him saw that he came back with the same thing that he went with, but he was healed and changed, that they would know that there was nothing that he paid for this. If he'd come back empty-handed, the Syrians might have said, well, he paid for something. But it's important, first of all, for them to know that. I want you to understand that Elijah is looking at this. Eli or Elisha was turning down the opportunity to become the richest man in Israel. Likely a gift from Naaman or even a partial gift from Naaman would have made him the richest man. He was walking away from more money than he could ever make in a lifetime, more money than he had ever imagined, and he had no problem turning it down because he knew, first of all, above everything else, I am a preacher of the word of God, and I don't want anything to compromise that. But Gehazi doesn't have those same scruples. Gehazi's an interesting dude. He watches Naaman offer all of this to Elisha, 
He watches Elisha turn down every penny so that it will send a message that when he goes back home that it was God that did something and it wasn't earned or paid for. And after Naaman begins to make the trip back and Elisha goes back inside the house, Gehazi goes after Naaman and you'll notice that what he says to him when he catches him is very crafty. I, I don't want to use, the, he lied and it was a good lie, but not a good lie in the sense that any lie is good, but it was a good lie in the sense that he was really believable. It was a lie that kind of made sense because if he had said, I want it for me, then Naaman wouldn't have given it to him because it would have aroused suspicion. He doesn't say it's for my master because my master has changed his mind, which would then indicate that Elisha had lost credibility. And nor does he ask for it all. He comes up and, and he uses this story. We have some impoverished seminarians that have come out of the hill country. Their clothes are really bad, don't have any money. Would, would you be willing to help a couple of really poor college kids out? Just a little bit of silver and a couple of change of clothes because they really stink from where they came from and it would be a benefit to all of us if you would help out. And, and, and he responds to this. Naaman responds and said, listen, take, take two sets of clothes again and I want to give you twice as much silver as you asked for. And we read this in verse 21 when it says, so Gehazi hurried after Naaman. He hurried after him. I mean, he's, he's not letting this money get away. And when Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down out of the chariot to meet him. And he says, is everything all right? Everything's all right, he answers. My master sent me, there's the first lie. Two young men from the company of the prophets have come from the hill country. Please give them a talent of silver, sets of clothing. And he, in verse 23, says, I'm going to give you more than you ask for. Take two talents. And he urged Gehazi to accept them. And Gehazi said, Sure. And then Gehazi has two servants with him and he says, you carry the stuff. And they carry it back and when they got close back to the house, he says, I'll take it from you now. And he walks in, the servants left. And then he walks into Elisha. Now the only way I can picture this is, how many of you grew up in homes where your mother had a unique sense that you had done something wrong before you even had a chance to admit it? There are hands going up all over. I don't know how my mom did it. I would walk in and she'd say, Doug. I'm going, what? You did something wrong, didn't you? How do you know? God told me. <laughs> I, 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 picture, I picture the prophet walking in and Elisha sitting there looking at him. And Elisha knows and judges him, but most of all, God judges him and he becomes the leper that Naaman was. What Naaman was healed of and cured from Gehazi gets, and there are plenty of times and we read this story and we respond, man, what a nasty God. That God going around striking people and smiting them and, and it's easy for us to look at this and say, wasn't that excessive? You know, that, that was rather excessive, wasn't it, all this? And I, and I promise you that we'll get back to that, but let me just show you what we're supposed to learn from Gehazi. The first thing that we see that brings him to this deed is number one, Gehazi determined in his heart that Elisha had been too easy on Naaman. In verse 20, it says, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, my master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, this Syrian. The first thing that Gehazi does and brings up when he looks at Naaman is his race. Looks at him with pride. and says, we should never have let a man of that race 
off as easy as you did. And Gehazi in his own mind looks at this and and feels as if it gives him warrant to take advantage of him. And there's a a mesh of, of contrast that takes place here. The first contrast is this. Every single thing that God does to bring Naaman to himself humbled Naaman. Naaman, in order to even get to Israel, had to overcome the the racism that may have occurred in his own life toward the people of Israel. These were enemies of one another. And he had to overcome the prejudice of, of another race of people. Then he had to overcome the prejudice of another faith just to get to Israel. And everything about the cure had been there to get rid of Naaman's self-righteousness, to get rid of his pride, and to bring him down and humble him. And yet, here is a prophet, an assistant to Elisha, looking down with self-righteousness, with pride, incredibly proud and arrogant, and he says, this man was let off too easy. I don't know about you, but there may be times in our life when we think God is too gracious to people we don't like. I thought about Jonah in this. Please don't send me to him, God, because I know you're going to be gracious and they don't deserve it. I think that this was probably the attitude that Gehazi had had. And we see a clear picture of the contrast between Naaman's humility and Gehazi's self-righteousness. And here's the second contrast that we see in this. Naaman was a pagan, knew nothing of the God of Israel. He knew nothing of the God of the Bible when he began his journey. And Gehazi was an assistant to the most high-profile prophet in the land of Israel. He knew everything. Gehazi was a religious person. He knew the Bible. He knew it inside and out. He had sat at the feet of one of the greatest prophets in history. He had seen firsthand the way God moved, the miracles that were done, and the way that he spoke through Elisha. He probably had even been selected by Elisha because he had demonstrated some giftings and abilities that could be used. And yet, Gehazi is on the path of Satan. Naaman chose the path of God. And Gehazi looks at Naaman and says, how can I use this person? How can I exploit this person for my own benefit? Because in my opinion, Naaman is not worthy of the grace that has been given to him. Here's a religious man on the pathway of Satan. And here is a pagan that chose the pathway of God. Tim Keller about this passage makes this quote, the grace of God makes you a better person, a changed person, but religion without the grace of God can make you a worse person than if you had no religion at all. Let me repeat that. The grace of God makes you a better person, a changed person, but religion without the grace of God can make you a worse person than if you had no religion at all. And here's the lesson. We look at this and say, wasn't God being awfully harsh here? I mean, he made him into a leper. It just, it just seems so overboard. And I'm going to tell you, no, it's not too much. And I'll tell you why. There are many things in this world that are wrong. We live in a broken decaying world and there's something that's always bothered me and maybe it has bothered you as well one of the things that is so wrong with this world is that there are people that have incredibly ugly spirits 
incredibly ugly attitudes. They are cruel, they're shallow, they're nasty, they're mean. And while they carry around these incredibly ugly souls, they have unbelievably beautiful and healthy bodies. And then there's the other side of that. We look around and there are people that have incredibly beautiful spirits, incredibly beautiful souls, gorgeous, loving hearts inside people who have broken, disfigured, and diseased bodies. Now, I ask my friend Renee if I could use her as an illustration, and she has allowed me to do so. She sits there on the front row, and by the way, she's got a really neat wheelchair that she can, when we stand up to worship, she hits it and it goes up, goes down. One of the most generous, kind, prayerful, loving, beautiful, spirited people I know born into a body that she wouldn't have chosen. Doesn't reflect well who she is on the outside. And so we look at this passage of scripture and you know what God is doing? He's putting the world right just once. Just once. In one instance, he is showing that what we look like on the inside will be displayed on the outside. He's showing the world that what is on the inside of Gehazi, that ugliness of his spirit, is represented in the ugliness of his body. And you know what? Do you have a problem with that? Do you have a problem with that? Because isn't that what we all hope for? And isn't that the way it's going to be in the last day when God says, I will make all things right? Is God being unfair? No. All the ugly will be ugly. And all the beautiful will be beautiful. Now, this is supposed to scare you because I saw some of your faces and you're going, that's what? Because Gehazi is a very religious person. Gehazi was a person who made it to church every week. In fact, he had perfect attendance pins. Gehazi was probably the top Bible quizzer in the School of Prophets. Gehazi probably received Israel's National Merit Award for short sermons. He would have gotten an A on his credentialing test. He would have, he would have flown through the doctrine and, and the beliefs and probably could have been credentialed as a pastor. And yet, he utterly misses God, misses him. He is all the things that Naaman is not. Gehazi has pedigree. He has opportunity that Naaman didn't. And yet Naaman finds God. And Gehazi misses him. So the question is this. How can you make sure that you don't miss God? How do you make sure? It's not enough just to come to church and it's not enough just to watch online. How then can we be sure that we do not miss him? Briefly, I want to go back to the to the first three verses of this chapter. And if you have your Bibles, I'm gonna ask you to look at that. I'm gonna read verses two and three because the hero of this account is barely mentioned, but she is mentioned. It says, now the bands of Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel. And she served Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Who is this? First of all, she's called a young girl, and the Hebrew term that uses it to describe that indicates to us that she was a pre-adolescent. So 
She's probably 10 years old to 13 years old, a very young girl. And as we look at this, we, we say, what happened to her? The scripture says that she was taken captive. As a result of that, she is now a slave living in Naaman's house, serving Naaman's wife. And if you know anything about the brutality of warfare about that particular time, bands of soldier from, soldiers from Syria had come in, raided her village, and had stolen her. In fact, it is likely that she has seen her parents killed before her very eyes in that raid. If she had any siblings, they were separated and she saw them sold into slavery. And now she is a slave in a Syrian household. And frankly, she is at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of the totem pole. She is of the wrong race. She's in Syria and she's an Israelite. She's a slave. She has no money and she has no rights. She's a woman in a patriarchal society. She is young in a society that venerated age and she is at the bottom of a dead end life. Everything has been taken away from this little girl. Her whole life has been robbed. And as you look at this story, who above all else in this entire account is responsible for everything that has happened to her. Naaman, the supreme military commander of the army of the king of Syria. And she's living in his house. I have to imagine that when she laid her head down at night, this dead-end life, dead-end life that she's living, she lays on whatever cot she's been provided in the slave quarters that she had to think about what life might have been like if none of this had happened. Her parents are gone. They're never coming back. Thinking about this horrible life of who she is and the misery that she's enduring, and she's in the very house of the man who's responsible for it all. And we look at this and say, how did she respond to all of this? Because this is the key to the whole chapter. The whole thing revolves around this. Let me tell you how she did not respond. When she heard that Naaman, the one responsible for her dead in life, had leprosy, she did not say, ha! Big man has leprosy. <laughs> Another finger fell off today. He deserves it. She could have said, I finally have some satisfaction, finally, because I know that I've got the key and I'm not going to tell him. He could be healed if he knew who I knew and what I know, but I'm not going to tell him and I'm going to at least have some satisfaction in knowing that I have his life in my hands and he's going to die and when he does in my heart I will dance at his funeral because of everything that he has robbed me from. Is that what she says? No. But sometimes that sounds an awful lot like me. Look at what she does. She doesn't even go to Naaman's wife and try to leverage what she knows for better conditions. She could have gone to the, and said, listen, let's make a deal here. 
If you can give me some better food and better living conditions, I'm gonna give you a secret that can spare your husband's life. She could have done that, but she did not. In fact, it tells us in verse three, she said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. There's love here. How can that be? There's longing here. There's compassion here. And we look at this, and the only answer that we can come up with is that she must have given costly forgiveness. All forgiveness is costly. There's some that's more costly than others. And I look at this, I'm going, how hard was it for this preteen put into the worst possible circumstances that she could be in? to have such a relationship with her God that rather than holding a grudge and letting someone die because she had the answer and they deserved it, that she would go to her mistress and say, I've got the answer and I love you so much I want you to know what it is. The whole chapter, this whole account hinges on the decision that she makes She could have kept her mouth shut and not forgiven him and let things play out and he dies and she could have chalked it up to God paying him back. His life was in her hands and she chooses instead to bear the suffering herself and forgive. And she loves him. And the result of her decision in a key moment at a very young age brought healing to Naaman's body, introduced him to the living God, to which Naaman went back into his country of Syria, determined to live with the one true God in the center of his life. The fascinating thing about this is that Naaman even talks about the fact that I'm bringing dirt back with me so that when I have to escort the king into the the temple of Ramon, the state ceremonies, that I'm taking this dirt from Israel out and I'm putting it on the ground, everybody's gonna know my testimony and even the king is gonna know this girl's decision, let the God of Israel's testimony reach the king's ears because she chose to forgive. And Naaman was saved because of a suffering servant in his life. Worship team, would you please come? Naaman had a servant in his household that he had wronged and she forgave him. She bore the cost of that forgiveness. She provided a way for him to be healed and saved through her relationship with God. And Naaman, interesting enough, Naaman listens to her. In fact, as you go through this, you'll discover one of the reasons Naaman was such a good leader is because he listened to the people around him, remember? He was in a rage and his servants are coming up, listen, master, 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 just take it easy. You know, if there was some great deed, wouldn't you have done it? And, and so there's a lot to love about Naaman and his personality and his leadership in this. But I am certain at some point when Naaman's wife came to him and said, listen, I've got news. And he says, from who? from the servant girl whose parents you killed, from the village that you raided, from the brothers and sisters you sold. And she said, there is an answer to the God of the Bible. And somehow, Naaman looked at her and recognized that she bore the suffering so that he could be saved. I don't know about you, but it should start to make sense for church people about now. Do you see it here? We're here because of a suffering servant. 
See, Jesus was also separated from his father. He came to earth in exile. The pain of separation was infinitely greater than anything that this girl had experienced or that anybody else has experienced. Jesus came to the human race and we beat him and we tortured him and we rejected him. And as we were killing him, he looks down on the human race and he chooses to stay. There's a song that many of us have known growing up. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free, but he chose to stay and become the suffering servant. In fact, not only that, he forgave. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And because he bears the punishment, he doesn't pay us back. He has our life in his hands and he chooses to bear the punishment. He forgives, and because of his decision, we rejoice in being saved today, having met the God of the Bible. 